Hey Magic Lantern listeners, there is no opening scene today as we will be covering so many great films that it would be unfair and nigh impossible to narrow down to just one representative scene. Instead, right here at the top, I just wanted to take a second to encourage everyone to go check out filmnoirfoundation.org. It's one of our favorite preservation organizations, and they are dedicated to finding and preserving noir films that are in danger of being lost or irreparably damaged, and they do such great work. Thanks to them, we've been able to see a number of our favorites on the big screen, and also you can pick these up in home video editions as they restore them and get them distributed. There's a ton of great stuff on the website, archival interviews of all sorts, and you can donate and help support the cause, so please check out filmnoirfoundation.org. Now, are you ready to dive into Noir City Austin 2019? It's about to get dark, folks. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowlane, and this is a special episode in which we will recount all of the sights and sounds of the annual Noir City Festival Austin edition, hosted by the Alamo Draft House and presented by Eddie Muller and the Film Noir Foundation. Just a note, while each film won't get the in-depth treatment that we usually give since we're covering so many, still beware of the potential for explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We're at episode 104 today. And I wanted to ask you a question before we dive into the films themselves, since we might have listeners that are new to this that haven't listened to all of our previous coverage of the festival. Why is it that we love Noir City so much? We live in Austin, and we literally have, with the Austin Film Festival, South by Southwest, Fantastic Fest, so many huge festivals, and then you pepper in the smaller ones throughout the year, there's literally a festival at least every month that we could go to. Why is it that this one has become such a personal favorite of ours and one that we put on our never miss list? I personally do not want to miss any opportunity to mingle with Eddie Muller, who is a prince among us regular mortals. It's really because of him and everyone involved with the Film Noir Foundation that makes this festival so special, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, everyone we've met that's involved with the organization is fantastic. Darrell Sparks, Ann Hawkins, Alan K. Rohde, everyone that contributes to this, in addition to Eddie Muller, are such wonderful, engaged people and dedicated to the cause, plus just super fun to hang out with. The level of knowledge and curation and love that goes into giving these films life is just singular. I don't mean to disparage any other festival, including the ones you mentioned, in those respects, but this just does stand out. It's also a genre I adore and never tire of, and I think, more than anything, it feels more relaxed. Eddie's just there in the lobby. I can explore that merch table with Darl. I can have a chat with other like-minded filmgoers. It's comfortable. It's not breakneck. It's inclusive. It's not exclusive. Funnily enough, my reasons are exactly the same as yours. You couldn't ask for a more knowledgeable, and I mean encyclopedic, knowledgeable host than Eddie Muller. He's dapper too. On opening night, he had that wonderful Art Deco tie with Asta from The Thin Man on it. Just makes me smile. That was fantastic. And exactly what you say, just genial, available to everyone, really 
interested in the conversations that people want to have with him. He's a host not just during the screening, but throughout the whole weekend. And I'm sure anyone who's been to the flagship festival in San Francisco can attest to what a wonderful master of ceremonies he is and just how engaged he is with everyone. And the subject matter, too. Obviously, on the show, we cover a lot of noir and neo-noir. It's a subject that's near and dear to our hearts. So to get to see these films in these pristine restorations, in this relaxed atmosphere, it feels like a really rare opportunity that if you're a classic film lover, you just should not pass up. The theme for this year's festival is It's a Bitter Little World. And if we look at last year's festival as Noir in the 40s, this is really a continuation of that journey into the 50s to see how the films, the stories, and the productions changed with the decade. I really like how this year and last year, actually, these festivals have been curated because we go in chronological order so we can see the progression of the form throughout the decade in question, and you really get a sense of the evolution, not just in terms of film production and techniques, but also how the films themselves are reacting to all of the changes that are happening in the culture at large, in this case, a big one being television. So not only is it a great slate of 10 films, it's a history lesson as well. So how about you kick it off with our first film? Opening night started with a doozy, and that film was Trapped from 1949, directed by Richard Fleischer and starring Lloyd Bridges, Barbara Payton, and John Hoyt. It's about a group of feds that enlist the help of a con to track down a ring of counterfeiters. Now, this is the Film Noir Foundation's latest restoration project, and that's coming on the heels of last year's restoration of the man who cheated himself with Lee J. Cobb, restorations prior to that, Cry Danger, The Prowler, Try and Get Me, Too Late for Tears, Woman on the Run, which I know is a big favorite of yours. Absolutely. So if you look at the track record, you can really see, if you know your noir, they are finding and preserving some fantastic examples of the genre that otherwise might have fallen off the radar. These are really key films to the genre, I think. And this one is no exception. This one is actually from 1949, like I mentioned, so it's not within technically that chronological range of the 1950s of the theme, but Eddie said they wanted to present this one as sort of the film to establish the baseline. Here's where we're coming from. We are leaving the film noir style of the 1940s, and this is a great example of that so we can soon see how much things are going to change. I should say right off the top, I love Richard Fleischer. He's one of my favorite directors of all time, and he's so all over the map. Mandingo, Soylent Green, Tin Rillington Place, one of my chilling true crime favorites, Dr. Doolittle, in addition to that, though, his noir credits are impeccable, too. Armored Car Robbery, which we just got to see. Violent Saturday, which we saw at Noir City last year. The Narrow Margin, which is on my Mount Rushmore of noir films. And now this, which has shot up the list to become an immediate favorite of mine. What did you think about it? I thought it was great. We're talking crosses on top of double crosses on top of triple crosses. I loved Eddie's introduction here talking about the irony of having mob involvement in a movie about the Treasury and the Secret Service. Not just involvement, but probably doesn't get made without their efforts. Specific underwriting. I also love this just from that standpoint of recognizing all of my favorite character actors. John Hoyt. I first knew him from Gimme a Break when I was a kid. 
And then we've got my favorite Douglas Spencer from The Thing from Another World. Can you believe he was uncredited in this? He was so great in this. I know, and he had an actual speaking role that was integral to the plot. And then we come all the way down to Russ Conway, who plays Gundy in this. I know him from The Screaming Skull. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a lot of fun. It also gives me another chance to go down those IMDb rabbit holes. For example, Barbara Payton and her very sad, terrible life are luridly outlined there. By the way, there was a brawl that Tom Neal and Franchot Tone apparently fought over her. Tom Neal's always involved in something like that. Yes, that's true. I think what it comes down to for me here is that the villains always have the better parts. The cops just ultimately seem trapped by a lack of imagination. But the crooks are trapped by the convention that they just can't win in the end. It's interesting that you say that because I don't know that I see it that way. I think that there is very definitely this naive adulation of law enforcement that I'm curious to see how much is going to change over the course of this decade as we get further into the festival. To me, it felt like the whole time that the cops were on the ball. There were always these surprises. Every five or ten minutes, there was a surprise for both the characters and the audience. And strikingly, that surprise always seemed like the cops or the feds or whoever was on the side of law and order were a step ahead of the criminals. I think it was just my cynical eye watching the film. Other things that I liked about it, I really like Lloyd Bridges as a tough guy. He is so clear-eyed and sharp, and there's a little meanness underneath there. For people of our generation who might only know him from Airplane or people from later generations that may not know him at all, this is kind of a revelatory performance, I think. You see a lot of potential for darkness in him, where you would otherwise maybe generally think of him as just an affable guy. The stylistic noir touches are nice, too. When he escapes from his predicament in the beginning, he's on a bus being transported by a police officer. The lighting in that bus is so hyper-stylized that you've never seen the interior of a greyhound looks so film noir. (laughs) And then that ending at the car barn in Los Angeles where all of the trolleys are, where all of the streetcars are kept, it's in that tradition of great noir finales like the funhouse mirrors in the end of Lady from Shanghai or just the underside of the docks in New Orleans in Panic in the Streets where Jack Palance is trapped like a rat. You have all of these great labyrinths that our antagonists get caught in and this is a really distinctive one. And a great Los Angeles landmark, Barbara Payton does a whole lot with a typically thankless female role in this. She gives life to these lines like, you don't make that kind of dough selling Bibles, which was (laughs) one of my favorite things of opening night. So it was a great place to start. We have all these great character actors that we're so fond of that we see pop up in the genre over and over again. The staccato dialogue that's so fantastic. It's so lean. There's not a bit of fat on it. I think it runs about 78 minutes. It was a great place to start off from. Where do we go from there? We've got a big change coming, and that is The Turning Point from 1952, directed by William Dieterle, who is the director of another Lantern favorite, The Devil and Daniel Webster. Absolutely. And it stars Edmund O'Brien, William Holden, Alexis Smith, and Ed Begley. It's about a crusading attorney who returns to his hometown to root out corruption. Now, we covered this briefly in our mini-episode on newspaper noir, and I liked this so much the first time, and I think it's even grown with this viewing. 
we should mention you say mini episode that's available on our Patreon, not in our regular feed. The difference here with this second viewing, I think I even like Alexa Smith less <laughs> than the first time. She's just not someone who has ever really lit a fire with me. And we were chatting about this a little bit. I think it's because her character is given the same style of dialogue as the other main characters, as Edmund O'Brien and William Holden. And it's dialogue that doesn't really flow in real life. But O'Brien and Holden can pull it off. She just can't quite hit the same mark and make it believable for that character. My favorite scene, though, still the favorite. It's a human man who is also a cop quietly explaining how he could be bought. And that's Tom Tully, by the way, playing Matt Conroy, the father of our crusader. I think, again, I had a little bit of a slight different reaction to you in that I thought this viewing of it for me, I enjoyed it even more than the first time we saw it. And that goes for Alexis Smith as well. Oh, okay, great. And I think that has a lot to do with seeing it the way it was intended to be seen, seeing it projected on the big screen. I caught myself seeing more, actually being able to perceive more that was happening both in terms of actual detail and what I thought of as character motivations. It seemed like I understood it better. I was catching the emotion of it more. I felt a little detached from it the first time we watched it because we watched it at home and it was almost like it was a homework assignment. There's just something about seeing these films in the theater and having this experience that makes it so different from home viewing. Now, already this is one of those great examples of how we are seeing the culture change the films. We're getting into the early heyday of television now, and what was available to a lot of the television audience in those days were these congressional hearings into the workings of organized crime. The Estes Kefauver hearings, for example, are what spurred this, because those took place in 1950-51 in the two years prior to the release of this film. It makes me think about watching a whole lot of flop sweat and cigarette smoke. <laughs> I imagine it made for pretty gripping viewing, though. It would if you had witnesses like Carolyn Jones strolling in there like she does in this film. <laughs> Good point. It makes for riveting television, I am sure. I think the thing I liked best about this viewing was how much I really took notice of the balance between the procedural part, the crime investigation, the corruption, and the relationship triangle that balanced that out. Plus, you throw in Neville Brand as the button man hired to come in from out of town. Nobody played ugly and dumb in the 1950s better than <laughs> Neville Brand. It's true. So a great opening night overall, wouldn't you say? Slam bang and real emotional depth. Well, the opening film on day two was City That Never Sleeps from 1953. And that was directed by John H. Auer and starring Gig Young. Blech. Oh, <laughs> keep Powers, it down over there. <laughs> Mala Powers and Lantern favorite William Talman, who was fresh off The Hitchhiker, which we just profiled in episode 103. He made these back to back. It's about a Chicago cop who is literally on his last day on the job as he plans to retire and leave his wife the next day. And we follow him through an eventful last night on the job. This one was kind of bananas. It had a little bit of everything. The things I like about it, Chicago, I love getting to see the city. Chicago is one of my favorite cities in the world. And I wish more noir films were set there specifically. It's such a perfect city for that. The downside, we have Gig Young and his smug sleepwalking all the way through this thing. I guess it's easy to make you hate this dirty cop. That's perfect in that regard. But 
I said it before during desk set. I am no fan of this guy. Well, we've got our first Dark City dame finally in Marie Windsor. So she's going to make everything better. She does. And boy, howdy. Let me tell you, no one can milk a death scene like Marie Windsor. You plug her in the gut and you've got a good three minutes of writhing and grimacing before she collapses in the street. And then we've also got Edward Arnold, who's always a personal favorite of mine. He just seems to be listening and naturally reacting to things. He's just a wonderful actor. I mean, it plays pretty sardonically, but then has that very strange, angelic tone in the character of the second cop. Overall, I just liked the first two acts more than the third, even with that cool climax in the L trains. Yeah, I was thinking afterwards that, okay, here's my theory. I think every single person thought they were making a different movie, is what I think. I think the director went to each one like it was a how to host a murder party and gave them their specific <laughs> character's secret. You're a ghost. Don't tell anyone. And I'm, I'm not making that one up. It seems like there may be a supernatural police officer in this. My actor's secret is I don't know what's going on. My other favorite part of this is that Mala Powers, who played a stripper in this case, a burlesque dancer at a cabaret, was apparently and pretty obviously such a bad dancer that her big centerpiece strip tease number, it took place off screen. You could see her handing her clothes to the person standing in the wings. And best of all, all of a sudden to convey to us that she was dancing, you could hear her tap shoes. Because everyone loves a tap dancing stripper. And I don't think it was implied before we had the off-screen part of it that she wore tap shoes. That was a device just to indicate, oh, by the way, don't forget, she's on stage. It's super bizarre. All the dancing in it by every single member of the chorus is terrible. Left arm up, right arm up, turn to the left, turn to the right. Don't engage hips or any of your limbs. I do enjoy the film, though. Just to be clear, it's such a weird amalgam of things that do work, don't work. I think it's just so audacious and bizarre that I give it credit. Here's my favorite line. Are you ready? Okay. This city is a melting pot and I got melted, but good. <laughs> I think New York City is the melting pot, first of all. I would agree with you. But she couldn't probably say, this city is the city of the big shoulders and boy, I've got them. <laughs> so, boy, I've been stacking wheat. <laughs> And butchering and hogs. <laughs> Working in the stockyards. We did have our first case of when we start putting these films together, weird details that show up over and over again. In our finale, in the big chase, we have our second electrocution by railway. So it was a fun start, if not exactly the best film ever made. Next, we had Private Hill 36. And I think I ended up liking this one a lot more than you did. We'll see. At least a little bit. It's from 1954, directed by Don Siegel, written by Ida Lupino and her husband at the time, Collier Young, and it was made under their production company banner of the filmmakers. It stars Howard Duff, Ida Lupino, Steve Cochran, and Dean Jagger. Two L.A. cops stumble into a counterfeit money trail from an East Coast robbery. Now, this was the one that I was really waiting for. I only wish that Ida Lupino had directed this as well, especially just coming after watching The Hitchhiker. 
I think it just would have been a bit more visually imaginative. But her character work in the screenplay is excellent as always. She's able to craft multiple motivations and varying degrees of honesty for the characters with themselves. Visually, I didn't have a problem with it. Don Siegel is no slouch, but I think you're right. I think it suffered in comparison to having just come off the hitchhiker for us. That viewing and the pedigree of this set the bar pretty high for me. This was one of, if not my most anticipated film of the festival this year, and it just didn't quite live up to the high expectations I had. Not to say that it was bad, I still definitely enjoyed it, but I was crossing my fingers for a five-star experience, and I think I got about a three out of it. Did you feel like it was a little too lean? Yes and no. Lean is fine, and I expect that out of these films. You know, running times on these anywhere from 63 minutes to 80 minutes or so. But when it's that lean, I want lean muscle. And that's not exactly what this was. It still has a lot of things to recommend it, and definitely interesting things that were motivating the entire production. During his introduction, for instance, Eddie Muller mentions that you start to see so many of these dirty cop movies around the early 50s, because what's going on in the culture is all of this stuff surrounding the Red Scare and the House on american Activities Committee. And so the way the writers were striking back was to write story after story of how maybe these cops aren't on the level, planting the seed in the public's mind that these are not trustworthy people. They are corrupt. It makes them a little sympathetic because often the device is putting these workaday cops in a position where they are frequently coming up against and seeing all the things that everyone else has that they don't. So it gives you an out with Howard Duff's character, for instance, because you've got this square guy who was momentarily lured away from the straight and narrow. Yeah, I just wanted to like it a lot more because I like all the players, especially Dorothy Malone is in it, who I've had a crush on ever since The Big Sleep. Steve Cochran, I think, pitches his performance perfectly, and I really was not familiar with him before this. Yeah, they all acquit themselves just fine, and I think it's interesting in that, in this case, you see a lot more of the home life than the investigation. It's sort of an anti-procedural in that way. I would say I just give it an even rating with City That Never Sleeps in an apples and oranges way. Maybe a slight edge to City That Never Sleeps just because it's so loony. Well, speaking of Looney, we wouldn't have this episode without getting into a little bit of actor backstories again. The Lura death of Steve Cochran, by the way. How many of these stories do we have for these actors in these films? I'm trying to keep it to a minimum because I could have one or two for every single film. But he did die pretty young on his yacht off the coast of Guatemala. His body remained on board for 10 days because the Mexican girls and women that were on the boat with him, aged 14 to 25, did not know how to operate the boat. Yeah, he was a pretty notorious playboy, let's say, to put it diplomatically. But if you gotta go, I guess that's as good a way as any. Not counting the underage part. Right. I make sure I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not endorsing that part. Don't align yourself with that. Well, next we had one that was new to you, and that was Killer's Kiss from 1955, directed by Stanley Kubrick and starring Frank Silver, Jamie Smith, Irene Kane, and Jerry Jarrett. It's about a dangerous love triangle between an aging boxer, a dancer, and her violent boss. This one is really interesting to me out of this batch. It feels like this is the one, as we're going through our history lesson and watching the evolution of how these films get made, this is the one that everything hinges on out of this program. 
It's a fledgling effort from Kubrick. Second full-length feature that he ever made. But it has a lot of those things that would become hallmarks of cinema that I love. The guerrilla filmmaking style. Non-professional actors. If it were wordier, you would think maybe even early Cassavetes here. The thing that really sticks out in this one to me, even though it's obviously a beginner, you can see Kubrick's eye for composition already is formidable. It's full of so many great shots on a budget that had to be minuscule. I think $74,000 was the number that was quoted. And the other thing I really like about it, these two lead performers, they have such a great everyday appeal. They're not glamour types. It's not Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. They look like actual human beings. Yeah, they're attractive and compelling, but in a very everyday, extremely relatable way. It made it very easy to get involved in their story, and they were very believable in their chemistry together, which can't have been easy for non-professionals to convey because there are long stretches of this that have no dialogue at all. And so they don't have that in their favor to try to put across character motivation. It's more like a poetic meditation on what film noir is. This was the one I was most trepidatious about. I read very short length, non-professional actors, non-synced sound. And I was thinking, gosh, is this just going to feel too amateurish? But I ended up really enjoying this. And I didn't feel that the acting was non-professional. Like you said, it really comes across. It's also, when I look at this one compared to Private Health 36, it's clear when something is written by someone who doesn't think women are lousy. I thought also that the fights were fantastic in a number of different settings, even though our main character, Davey, I think is the worst boxer ever. And I love those extremely grubby New York locations. Davey is not the worst boxer I've ever seen on screen. He gets a few good shots in. He's way more believable than a lot of boxers on film that I've seen. I don't want anyone out there to be thinking this is a Tony Perkins playing baseball type of thing. <laughs> Good point. Mostly that he's in so many of these fights and it ends up with him being knocked down a lot. I could really see why nothing about the production of these genre films would be the same after this. If you can make something that looks this good for this little money, all the B units of the studios had to be taking a look at this and saying, if this guy can do it, we can figure out a way to do it just as cheaply and make it look just this good. And where do we start? By recruiting talent like this. So these creators are bringing these styles and production techniques to Hollywood now. And from here on, through the latter portion of the 50s, things would be a lot more like this. We're definitely going to go in a different visual direction, though, for this last film of that evening. And that is A Kiss Before Dying from 1956 because it's in color and it's widescreen. It was directed by Gerd Oswald, with Robert Wagner, Joanne Woodward, Jeffrey Hunter, and Virginia Leith. Bud Corliss is an amoral social climber who murders his rich pregnant girlfriend and then gets involved with her sister. I had seen this before, and I think, to be fully honest, I probably slept through most of the first viewing, and the second viewing I think slightly improved upon that first experience, but more than anything, it's just sort of dull. Virginia Leith, whom I'm a huge fan of, is just kind of dull in this. That's her character. I do think in this instance, Robert Wagner's general blankness does pay off. It's got the great George McCready, love that guy, 
And it's kind of fun in that the bad guy actually does get it in the end. I will not get into Jeffrey Hunter's also very young, terrible death. This was also my least anticipated title of the year. I am putting words in your mouth, I guess, maybe by saying it was your least. I'm with you. Yeah, And that was. was based on having seen it before. First things first, let's say, what a douchebag, but great clothes. Does that go for every character? I think it does for me. Everyone's character is very well dressed, but specifically Robert Wagner. They really took advantage of the technicolor in this with his wardrobe. It's fascinating just in that regard to see how color coordinated he is with everything. It's really a brilliant piece of wardrobe design. There are a few things that give me pause here. This is also the first one on the list that I really truly think is this film noir that I enter into that debate with myself. Ultimately, I come down on the side of just barely, I think. And the other thing is Joanne Woodward. How do you feel about Joanne Woodward? Just in general? Her entire body of work or here? You know what? I don't really ever think about her. I guess that's the most honest answer I can come up with. For some reason, I always think I should like her more than I do. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's her choice of roles. Because she's not a bad performer, I think she's an excellent performer, especially with this character. It's the character that's so dang terrible. But invariably, when I see her on screen, I think, oh, I would just rather hang out with her in person than watch her doing what she's doing up here. There's some sort of weird disconnect, and I always want her to be much more interesting than I find her characters to be. You mentioned George McCready. It's also interesting to see Mary Astor as Robert Wagner's mother, Especially when you take into context where this film sits. As, just like Killer's Kiss, this is a pivotal moment in film noir too. This is the last gasp of the studio system trying to generate this kind of large-scale modern take on the genre. And so you've got Mary Astor, who is hard-boiled movie royalty, coming from the Maltese Falcon. And George McCready, who was in My Name is Julia Ross, another favorite of ours, alias Nick Beale. And they are passing the torch, it feels like, for what ultimately ends up being sort of a final processional of studio film noir, one that they pulled out all the stops for. We have another one of those neat instances of things that you never see in movies, but here they are all of a sudden, one after another, the second instance of a man holding a cigarette while a woman smokes it, sort of feeding it to her. The things that I do like about this, the Ripley-esque character that Bud Corliss is... It's always fun to see someone who at least gets certain aspects of this sociopathy right, and that happens most often for me when you see that slight smile creep across Robert Wagner's face when he has done something absolutely diabolical. All I could think about was how much more I enjoy Purple Noon. (laughs) And really, the story itself is full-on noir. It's just the production that I think lets us down. But there are things about the production that work for me, too. I really like these wide-open Arizona backdrops. It makes me think of Violent Saturday, another Technicolor Noir that I like a lot. Another Virginia Leith performance. But ultimately, it just doesn't get there for me. And I think that's basically because of Joanne Woodward and Virginia Leith and every other woman in this thing espousing this attitude of, oh, anything you say. That was the real drag for me, I think, that keeps me from enjoying this more than I do. So we're at the end of day two. We've now gone through six movies. Did you feel an overall theme from what you were watching in day two? What did you walk away with after the second day? Well, especially coming at the end of A Kiss Before Dying, 
it's really starting to get offensive how stupid and drab these women are. This is the quality of writing, not the quality of performance. I'll say a positive thing, an interesting thing, I was really enjoying getting glimpses of people of color in smaller roles. I'm thinking of City That Never Sleeps, Killer's Kiss. City That Never Sleeps in particular has a great interaction with a con man and Gig Young as a cop who's rousting his dice game. I think that scene in particular adds a Chicago feeling. It adds some levity, some actual genuine comic relief. So yeah, these characters popping up are helpful. I think the overarching feeling that I walked out with after day two was that each of these films really knocked out one aspect of film noir, but none of them were a combined home run. In City That Never Sleeps, you have the ultimate, as Eddie said, reptilian bad guy in William Tallman, and you've got all these tropes that were time-tested, and so it feels almost like a throwback to the 40s-style noir. You have a really interesting and nuanced take on the dirty cop phenomenon in Private Hell 36. The noir photography, the quality of the images in Killer's Kiss is amazing. And then in A Kiss Before Dying, it basically takes our little Academy Ratio black and white frame and just explodes that and fills it with color. So it's really compelling to look at. I was just hoping for one of these films to bring a number of these elements together and be one of those five-star experiences, but we didn't quite get there. But we still have day three on the horizon. And what a day three. It ended up being my favorite. And this first film we're going to talk about, I think, is part of the big reason for that. I'm right there with you. And this first film that we saw to kick off day three was Nightfall from 1957. And that's directed by Jacques Turner, no stranger to the noir genre, made one of the greatest ever out of the past. And it stars Aldo Ray, Brian Keith, Rudy Bond, and Anne Bancroft. It's based on a novel by one of the greatest crime fiction writers of all time, David Goodis, and it's about a hunter who renders aid to some stranded motorists only to find out that they are dangerous bank robbers on the lam. Don't forget, we've got a James Gregory sighting in here too. I always think James Gregory is Larry Storch for some reason. It just seems like his name should be Larry Storch. Starring James Gregory from F Troop. Now, I said that Private Hell 36 was the one I was waiting for. This was the one that I was waiting for. We didn't know that though. This one was one that was brand new to both of us, right? Absolutely. And it looked great. It moved great. There's a terrific structure with really effective flashbacks. And the revelation for me was Aldo Ray. He gives an incredibly sensitive performance here. I have always thought he is massively underrated. He is one of my favorite actors from this period. The way he delivers those lines, sensitive and sensible, I think is what I really like about this character. Again, like Killer's Kiss, one of those everyman types, but he's still got that noir edge, or at least when he delivers this David Goodis style dialogue. Nice place, I'll try not to bleed all over everything. That's so film noir. But he just has such a ready smile. He's really charming. You think of him as an affable lug, but then when you actually give him room to talk, you realize this guy is smarter than I give him credit for. And to his credit, he doesn't think he's smarter than he is. It's a perfect balance. I love most of all, like we were talking about in Killer's Kiss with the realness, that it seems like a real person. He's not a mysterious, tough guy. 
I also think Brian Keith is at his best here. And Rudy Bond, man, that guy's exceptional. He is so infuriatingly rat-faced evil. Think Richard Widmark in Kiss of Death pushing that lady in the wheelchair down the stairs. That type of born bad criminal, but maybe without the maniacal glee. There's definitely something real and modern and grounded in that character. And speaking of David Goodis and this style of dialogue, the thing that I noticed about this, that it sounds like it might be a detriment, but I don't really think it is. I was surprised at how talky this one was, especially when you contrast it with something like Killer's Kiss that is minimal dialogue, much more impressionistic. This was a gab fest, it seemed like, but none of it was forced exposition. This is what I was talking about in terms of the character not being mysterious. He's constantly talking about what he's thinking and feeling. It has some great snowy locations that really brought me back to things that I love, like On Dangerous Ground with Robert Ryan. There was just so much to love about it, I think. This was my five-star viewing experience for the weekend. Anne Bancroft is excellent, and I love the things that they give her character to do as opposed to the female characters we've seen up to now. She's totally game. She's an equal. She's tromping around in the snow, renting cars, climbing fences, just like the guys are. There's that great shot when she's being tied up at the end. There's no whining. There's no crying. There's no nothing except a dead blank stare at Rudy Bond trying to kill him with her eyeballs. <laughs> but it's not always rough and tumble and tomboy either, because I don't think I've ever seen a chase ensue where one of the primary participants is wearing a ball gown. You really get off to a glamorous head start when you have to flee your fashion show mid-runway stride. And $600 worth of sequins. Yeah, relatively, I know that Columbia spent very little to no money on this, but when you have Jacques Turner behind the camera, that guy is a consummate professional, and you always know you're going to get something good. What do we have next? Speaking of practically no budget, this next film was reportedly filmed in seven days, which I think you can believe when you've seen it, and that's not to its detriment either. And that's Murder by Contract from 1958 directed by Irving Lerner, with Vince Edwards, Herschel Bernardi, and Philip Pine. Our cold, ruthless hitman, Claude, comes to California to kill a federal witness. Now, this turned into a really fun experience, and I ended up most liking the character of George, played by Herschel Bernardi. This was really early in his career, and I think of him as much later in his career. When you see his photo, you will probably recognize him. To talk just a bit about background, I love reading about Vince Edwards, who, by the way, has a face made for the movies. He has a section in his wiki article just devoted to gambling. <laughs> and there's Kathy Brown here, who has a really fun part, I think, of her as the 50s D. Wallace. She was married to Darren McGavin for a long time, and I think of her as being from TV primarily. And I don't know if you also noticed this, but part of the climax looks like a pivotal location from the killing. Yeah, I can see that. Those little bungalows that Sterling Hayden rented, similar to the way that they probably use the exact same locations from On Dangerous Ground to film Nightfall. I want to watch them back to back, The Killing and Murder by Contract, and see if they look the same. The other big impression here was that backstory to our hitman, that women are pigs in his word to this guy. It feels a little bit different here. It doesn't feel like the screenwriter voicing his opinion of all women. It feels like it just applies to this character. 
but still, a little of that goes a long way. They could have made an hour and a half movie just about him and his relationship to women. No hits, no contracts, no nothing. And that would have been just as fascinating, I feel like, had they had the inclination to do so. Some of the things I like the most about this, I think that the quietness really lends itself to a certain moodiness that you didn't get in the other films. And these early hits are so dark. When he goes from scissors to the straight razor, when he has that customer in the barber chair. We tend to think of Hitman being with guns, and this is him committing the violence with his hands. Right. And we often think of that as from a distance. We don't think of it as often as him going into a patient's hospital room and pinching off his air tube. And those characters are only to be seen again as entries in his bank book. It is cold-blooded. I was kind of giving him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt to begin with. Maybe we're just looking at an amoral character before we slipped into that psychopathic misogyny that he engages in. But there is an interesting monologue that he gives when they ask him about if he feels anything. I feel cold. I feel hot. I get sleepy. I get hungry. This is strictly business. This is the epitome of there's nothing personal until he discovers this final hit is a woman and it completely upends everything. But not for the reasons that we might think and that ensues with a really interesting scene talking about it's because he hates women, not because he's afraid or feels some emotion about killing a woman over a man. No, they're just unpredictable because you can't count on them for anything. So they're harder to kill. So he wants twice the money. I think an interesting side tangent to this, this hatred of women that this particular character has, we were speculating on this a little bit. I think there is a way that you could read that the character George, one of his minders while he is in Los Angeles, may be in love with him, or at least enamored of him in a way that goes beyond just the typical tough guy criminal bonding. It makes for a really interesting character and interesting screenplay. So is this one a case of where of all the things we saw, there's probably the biggest difference between how much you expected to get and how much you actually got out of the film? I didn't read much about it going in, and it completely caught me off guard. I didn't expect it to be made the way that it was, to have the performances that it did, to have those really interesting takes on the whole situation. Well, I know we both had high hopes for the next one, because we are definitely familiar with this filmmaker, and he's a big favorite of ours. The penultimate film of the festival was The Crimson Kimono from 1959, and that's directed by Samuel Fuller, and it stars Victoria Shaw, Glenn Corbett, and James Shigeta. It's about two detectives in Los Angeles, their Korean War Army buddies, and they're assigned to investigate the murder of a stripper and then get drawn into a love triangle in the process. This is typically two-fisted, down-and-dirty Samuel Fuller stuff. You get this opening in which a stripper... Sugar Torch, one of the greatest stripper names of all time. Right <laughs> Who's having a great time, yeah, by the way. She's, that name is right up there with Watermelon Rose. She gets gunned down literally in the middle of Main Street between speeding cars heading in both directions. You knew this one was going to be right in your face, right? None of this was a surprise knowing that it was Sam Fuller. Definitely, but I was still surprised because of that relationship element. Because of the care taken in the male characters as well. But most of all, simply from the standpoint of viewing it within the festival, the women's parts are really the highlights. You mentioned Victoria Shaw, and there's also Anna Lee, who I always love. These are people I actually want to hang out with. And I wasn't quite clear in Murder by Contract when I talked about how a little went a long way. I didn't really want to hear more about 
women being pigs, women being related to monkeys, even if it was speaking to the motivation of the character. But I didn't have any of those problems here. This one really stood out for me with those women's parts. Well, you can always count on Fuller to do something revolutionary and iconoclastic. He does not give a good goddamn what you think. He's going to make what he wants to make and say what he wants to say. And so not only did he have this excellent and intelligent treatment of the female characters, but he is also dealing extremely sensitively with race issues because we are not that far from post-World War II when the Japanese-American citizens in California were in internment camps. And now one of our lead characters is a prominent detective on the Los Angeles police force. I really like James Shigeta. I love his voice. It's so mellifluous and commanding and solid. That guy was clearly a star from word one. Contemporary audiences probably know him best as Bonnie Bedelia's boss in Die Hard, Mr. Takagi. Question for you here. This is one that's been plaguing me since we watched it. Does it pass the noir test for you? I'm not entirely sure that it does for me. Certainly, the stripper element, it's got that seamy underbelly of the city. But I think in general, it plays like kind of a straight-ahead murder mystery, which is also not a bad thing. And then those really interesting relationship elements, it doesn't make it more noir for me. How do you feel about it? Well, it does a lot of things. It does the murder mystery thing. It does the social issue thing. But what I keep coming back to after you initially asked me about this as we were walking out of the theater, think about the pulp quotient. That is always a good barometer to go by. And no matter what Samuel Fuller makes, you know that's always going to be riding high. So I think based on that alone, it qualifies. And I think some of James Shigeta's internal turmoil qualifies for that too. If we're talking about the noir protagonist who is torn between two worlds, who maybe not be making the greatest decisions based upon how his feelings for a woman have gotten him wrapped up in this whole thing, then I think it qualifies there too. But you're right. It does so much more. I was saying that thing about Fuller being revolutionary. We should not underestimate how important this finale is. I know it's not a big deal to us now, perhaps, but in 1959, in a love triangle with two Caucasians and then James Shigeta, for the Asian-American character to quote-unquote get the girl, that is huge. There's no way we should downplay how huge that is. And not only that, we actually see them kiss. I was afraid it was just going to be an embrace, but no, they go for it. You're talking about Sam Fuller here. He's not going to not take the opportunity to put this in your face. We do also get a woman wounded in the street. In this case, she's not dead, but basically her body's just there so we can check that box off the noir bingo list. But it's not just rose-colored glasses when it comes to the happy ending for the Asian American characters either. When it's looking at race, there are some complicated things happening. In particular, there is a kendo bout between our Caucasian detective and our Japanese American detective. There is a Japanese American spectator at this event, and you see him go through an entire range of emotions as it cuts back and forth between their bout and his reactions. At first, he's just excited, seemingly like any sports fan in general would be. But then, when Joe, James Shigeta's character, begins to become more aggressive, I feel this little thing creep into his face of, not quite pride, but yes, this is our chance to strike back. This is one for our side. And then when Joe goes even farther and is obviously breaking the rules and has crossed the line, 
a subtle sense of shame plays across his face. It's a really interesting series of reactions to this. And obviously, Sam Fuller is shining a light on it because it's cutting back and forth to this particular character and we see what's playing across his face. But there is a wide and subtle range of emotions happening to this guy in the blink of an eye and it's really interesting. I thought that was a fantastic sequence. And the things that he's picking up on are not just perception, but in Joe's case, so much about self-perception. Typical Fuller, he's going to take this pulp material and make it into something that transcends that genre. And now we're ready to end this whole thing with a big bang, and that is Blast of Silence from 1961, written, directed, starring Alan Barron, along with Molly McCarthy. It's about a hitman who returns to his home turf for what's meant to be a quick assignment. This was a second viewing for me. How about for you? I've seen it at least four or five times. And as great as I remembered it the first time, that sadness and that isolation runs even more deeply the second viewing for me. Maybe also because it's at Christmas time. Isn't it funny how Eddie always seems to end these things on a holiday note somehow? I love it. Keep doing it. I really noticed this time how much Alan Barron reminds me of a young Robert De Niro. Mm, he uh, could be his twin, practically. Same thing. Proto De Niro, right here in my notes. You know, it's pretty similar, I think, to Killer's Kiss in that style and that leanness to the bone. And also, that charm in how the main actors look like regular people. I especially love Molly McCarthy in this. I think she does a great job. And once you watch it, if you then go on to buy the Criterion edition of this, it's got great special features, and I really liked learning more about Alan Barron. He's an incredibly talented artist. You might belay that enthusiasm a little bit. As I just read, getting ready to do this, at age 91, he was just accused of sexual improprieties. Oh, no. Yeah, so maybe... Maybe back off oh, on that just a touch. Oh, God. All right. I hate to even have that in here. We're just going to have to talk about the work, I guess. <laughs> yeah. In this case, it stands up. The film itself, I don't think I've ever seen the aloneness, the loneliness of the hitman distilled to its essence the way it is in this film. Of course, it doesn't hurt to have the great voice of Lionel Stander telling us all of these feelings that he has inside. But it also does things that we've never seen before. We saw a little bit of this style, like you mentioned, Killer's Kiss, this guerrilla style of filmmaking. No permits, out on the New York streets, capturing the actual rhythms of the city. But I would say this fight scene where he kills Ralph, the brutality of this scene, which includes an axe, this brutality is something that is altogether new. This is something on a level that we've never seen before. And something that you could only get away with in an independent production like this. Poor timing, but also that scene of sexual violence feels even more violent than anything else we would experience. And he's not even taking it out on the right people, because you know who I'd kill? I'd kill her brother, and then that beatnik nightclub singer. Oh, put him back in his torrid town and <laughs> get the heck away from us. The rest of the music, however, I think is fantastic. This was my favorite score, maybe tied neck and neck, with that jangly guitar score from Murder by Contract, which you can't get out of your head. Both great and both serving really excellent purposes. They don't feel like that constant underscoring that I hate. They seem to just be organically involved in what we're seeing. Yeah, the music for Blast of Silence is definitely not just a bed to put everything on top of. 
every piece of music in this is communicating something important about the state of mind of these characters. As the Hitman movies went, did you have a preference, Murder by Contract versus Blast of Silence? I'm still going to stick with Blast of Silence. It's just composed so well every single shot. It's something other. Yeah, I can't argue with that. What an achievement this thing is. And a perfect, bitter note to end on. It doesn't get more noir than dead in the snow and the mud all by yourself. No matter how many times I watch it, it leaves me with that hollow feeling in the pit of my stomach, just like it should. Happy die year. <laughs> That's another noir city for us in the books. Ten great films, this time the majority of which neither one of us had seen. A lot of these were first-time watches for us, which is fantastic. I would say Trapped and Nightfall are my overall favorites. Those two, I think, were the best things I saw this weekend. Nightfall at the very top, Trapped just below that. What about you? I think I'm going to say the same. I might still substitute out the turning point as number two, because I just really love that. Okay, I'm also going to throw in Private Hell 36 as well. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting in reaction to the theme, because as we move into this more broad and experimental era of noir, the two that were my favorites were the two that hewed most closely to the traditional noir model, Nightfall and Trapped were both very much in that mid to late 40s style of noir as opposed to everything else we saw. But then Nightfall bringing the element of a slightly different acting style and something more modern with the partnership. Maybe I was just hankering for the tried and true this weekend instead of the more experimental. Not to say that the other films weren't great. They are definitely not lesser than. It's so interesting to see that we are moving into this era that saw the real rise of the independent genre picture, and I still feel that reverberating in so many things that I love to this day. You see it in everything from the crime pictures of the 70s down to something like Jim Jarmusch's early films in New York. I think it's another reason for people to check out our neo-noir mini-episode if they want to check us out on Patreon. Did you have a favorite day out of the three? I think day three knocked it out of the park. Just the four films all together, solid. Great to pretty dang good to really wonderful to exceptional. I totally agree. Day three was the same for me. Day three was the day that gave me everything in the lineup that I could have possibly asked for. And it introduced me to a new favorite, which is an experience that we can pretty much count on every single time we go to this festival. I hate to toot our own horns, but we did win a prize. I was just going to mention that. <laughs> that made my month, my year. We won Eddie Muller's book, Gun Crazy, The Origins of Outlaw Cinema. And we got another patented, wonderful Eddie Muller inscription. It's another thing that the festival is always great for. I got to spend a lot of time talking with Eddie this weekend, too. And we spent a lot of time on the stuff that the foundation is doing, that the Film Noir Foundation is working on including upcoming releases. They have four in the works, not counting Trapped, which was the opening film this year, which will soon be coming to Blu-ray via Flickr Alley like the last three. Four is a lot. That's really wonderful. It is, and they're very exciting. I don't want to mention upcoming titles in case I'm not supposed to, and because I don't want to jinx anything, but take it from me, the next one in the pipeline is one that hardcore noir fans are going to be very excited about. And also just keep in mind that our donation and yours make those restorations possible. Yeah, this next one is right in their wheelhouse of deserving entry in the noir canon, but 
that is also obscure enough that it's going to surprise and delight everyone when they make this announcement. He was telling me about what an arduous process this was and how bad the elements were when they got their hands on them. They got the original camera negative, but there was one reel of it that was so solidified from being stored forever, they couldn't even get it out of the film canister. They had to soak it for an hour and a half before they could even try to move it to see how bad it was. And it was bad. The good news is, Eddie said he saw that final completed restoration two weeks ago, and it looks spectacular. So it's going to be great. I would say, just tell me once we finish recording what they're going to be, but I can't keep a secret. You're right. You can't. So instead, I'm going to say <laughs> thanks to Eddie Muller. Thanks to Darrell Sparks. Thanks to Ann Hawkins. Thanks to everyone at the Film Noir Foundation for all the work they do for people like us that love these films. This festival is one of our favorite things to do every year. I already can't wait to see what's on the lineup for 2020. But until then, that brings us to the end of episode 104. If what we do here is valuable to you, and after you support the Film Noir Foundation, you can then go and look at our Patreon at patreon.com magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. And in fact, we have two big thank yous to make this time. We have two new Patreon supporters since we last mentioned it, Phil DeCane and Chris Casey. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Your support, you don't know how much we appreciate it. We are very grateful. If you would like to just get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. If you have the time, we'd love it if you checked out our new podcast network that's home to us and a lot of other great shows. That network is called The 25th Frame, and it's an ever-growing rotation of dedicated cinephiles talking about movies and culture from around the world. You can find our show and all the other shows on the roster at 25thframemedia.com. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Doug McCambridge at Good Times Great Movies, Andy Wolverton, Dean Estes, The Fine Gentleman at Fuds on Film, Terry and Liz at Happily Cinemaried, and our good friend Laura Cannon, who does the Fatal Films podcast, whom we were lucky enough to spend a lot of time with at Noir City this weekend. If you're out there sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure and tag us so we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and the 25th Frame. Just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Twenty-fifth frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.